Let me terrify you for a second. Let's start this way. Um, they're, they're, I'm probably gonna cut this because I just, it's probably too serious for the, for the podcast and I don't think any of this is joking when I say this, that if you are even in the least bit depressed or the least bit, uh, existential, ponderous even, and you trip face, you are going to go there at some point in the trip and how you react to that moment defines the rest of your trip. Yeah. Cause if you react negatively, you are on this drug for the next four hours. Hope you don't get there in the first five minutes folks. Yeah. Because that happened to me. (laughs) I got there in the first five minutes and I spent the next, what felt like 15 minutes, full minutes in a dark, anxious, and just terrible fucking place. I constantly, okay, so my bad trip. Here is everyone getting my bad trip. I've held this in for like 30 episodes. So like, like three minutes in, we're watching something and I start to feel very warm and I'm like, uncomfortable and then they start putting on music i don't like and i'm just like you guys suck and then not gonna mention names and then i got anxious and i felt like i had to get up and get out so i went up my cellar to the outside and all i saw was blackness and emptiness because of course it was the middle of the fucking night And I didn't have any lights on outside, and I felt like I had just ascended to hell. And it was an empty void, and I looked at it, and I ran. (laughs) And I went back into my basement and proceeded to then hyperventilate and have an anxiety attack over the next 15 minutes. (laughs) Wow. I had paced this pool table a hundred times by the end of the night to get my mind focused on what I was physically tripping versus what I was emotionally and metaphorically in my mind tripping. Cause there are two different ways. Uh There's the body high and there's the head high and they both meld and morph into what can be the most perfect experience. I have had, so many fun and great experiences on both acid and mushrooms. But that is when you are so into it that you don't even worry about the dark. Yeah. You don't even go to the depth. You are so visually and emotionally captivated in that moment that you don't even worry about it. But us assholes just sitting on a couch, nothing says my life is going to end one day faster than watching like clips of the mean girls musical <laughs> which is what they put on it's what they put on <laughs> so 
Yeah, like I went there and I had an anxiety attack and I told myself, defense mechanism is go to bed. Went to my bedroom, turned off the light, got myself into a burrito, immediately started seeing shit floating above me and towards the ceiling of my room. Even with your eyes closed? Even with my eyes closed. Did not enjoy that. Got up, came back outside, and tried to get distracted in something that they would do. So I put on Mario Party for them, and I kind of coached them through it. It gave me a directive. But even then, they started playing, and I was like, I can't play because I can't fucking focus, and I can't fucking sit down, and I can't calm down. So I just keep pacing, but I'll look. And every time I'll come around the bend, I'll watch the TV, and I'll be like, okay, you do this, you do this, like... Oh, you're in such a good position. Like, oh, th- that mini game was funny, you know. And then at one point, I sit down on the couch, and I proceed to have a very fun, and giggly, and kind of bouncy, both body and emotional high. And for the rest of the night. And that was all for what twenty, thirty minutes. From the point where you had the. I guess yeah, I, attack I would then... say it felt like 15 minutes, but it was probably closer to an hour. Okay. When I look back on it, it feels like I did everything really quickly and sporadically, but I'm sure to my... You know, they had watched so much shit on YouTube before they started Mario Party, and even during Mario Party, I was having a bad time. Yeah. It, didn't, it took until the end, like the final third of the game, where like... You know, the stars have been accrued and maybe now people are stealing them from each other for me to sit down on the couch. So it's just like, yeah, it was probably closer to like an hour because the the, the trip started almost immediately. I, I hadn't eaten much. We had ordered food and it wasn't great. And I didn't eat much. And then I took a bunch of shrooms and then I had one of the worst experiences of my life. <laughs> so when I say that I wake up in the morning... And I immediately picture death, and uh, I say, you know, whatever, it's gonna happen eventually. I mean, you know, I think that's okay. Yeah, it's it is. I'm probably cutting this entire first six yeah. minutes, but I still think it's funny to think about. Yeah, and while we're talking about, I guess that, uh, you know, for me, Venom made me feel very similar. Anyway, man, for you, you know. I finish with the day's activities. I'm laying down. I have to. I have to put on music at night. I can't. I can't. It's hard for me to sleep in silence or go try to go to sleep with silence. Um, See, I need. I need almost complete silence and complete blackness and coldness. Yeah. Welcome the void. Become, wow. Become the void. Well. This basement can be a fucking void sometimes, man. Oh, I've experienced it before. It's where time just it almost reminds time me just of escapes. like it almost reminds me of what the cold vacuum of space would be like. It is. It's almost like being on a spaceship. Do you ever do you ever lay awake at night and like when you're falling, falling asleep? Do you ever think about what the sensation would be if you're floating in outer space? Yes, I have thought of that. Like you could. You could I've also do the feel action. like I've experienced that in water. You could do the action of, of trying to breathe, but there's nothing there to... to, to oh, that. Like that. experiencing a vacuum. Yeah. You would yeah, be, that's what anxiety does. The muscle anxiety memory. makes you feel that way. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. When but you start to hyperventilate, space, yeah. you feel like you can't breathe. 
And I got that. <laughs> I hit that it, point on my trip, dude. You'd think it'd be so cold, but if you're in direct, if you're in the the direct path of the sun and it's and it's radiation, that's hot. That'd that's be true. super hot. Oh, you'd be f- fried the second you yeah. were exposed to it. But anywhere else in in the vacuum of space, if you were if you were on the night side of Earth in the vacuum of space, you'd freeze. You'd be frozen. But as soon as you're exposed to radiation, without you know, protective barrier of the atmosphere. Your entire body. Frying. It's, yeah. cra- it's crazy to think about the vacuum of space. Space is terrifying. It, it, it is terrifying in space, but the comfort of Earth, you know, I was, it was a beautiful sunset this evening. And I, and I, thought, I saw the, the, the moon, it was, in its, it was in its crescent phase. And I looked and I was just like, you know, when I die, at least I can understand and accept that there is there is beauty in the universe and yeah. beauty's relative but doesn't mean it's not true and if there's anything i can take with me is that beauty is real you know that's good that's magical that's um it's very poetic of you and evil things can be beautiful <laughs> for instance the sun and i say evil not like human morals i mean I should not use the word evil. I, I should say destructive. destructive. Fucking jinx, you owe me a soda. I knew exactly what you meant. Nature. Yeah. And the the way the earth works and a lot of our experience on it is both terrifying and... Beautiful. Beautiful. And um, the fact that you could respect that shows your maturity in the... Uh, in the existential department. Mm. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say welcoming or forthcoming in any way, shape, or form, but just acknowledgeable. Yeah. Which means a lot nowadays. Because, uh, ding dong, everyone. It's me at the door. Uh, distracting yourselves. The yeah. Life is distraction. You know, try to, try to leave a name for yourself. Try to leave something behind. Because... You are biding time. Yeah. <laughs> so find something to enjoy. You know, you're only going to experience this shit once. So take the risks. Do what you got to do. Um, yeah. Feel what you got to feel. Trip what you got to trip. Um, I, you know, the, the one thing I actually told people after telling them about how bad my trip was, was... I still think every person should experience that because you you kind of understand. You would not enjoy yourself. I will say this. I still think everyone should do it. Maybe not acid, but mushrooms. I think acid is a roller coaster you can't get off of where mushrooms is a transformative experience. Mushrooms put you in... What about ayahuasca? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> mushrooms put you in touch with the universe and at one point if you look at the universe it might look back at you and you might not enjoy yourself and and for that i will say there's a lot to learn there there's a lot to feel there and that is important in the human experience of of life but i don't think you'd enjoy yourself is what i'm saying sure yeah um the fact that i can enjoy myself and you know 
I would pull out the bag right now, but I still have so many fucking shrooms. I just haven't done them because my past two experiences have been pretty bad. Yeah. I am not in a good headspace. And to amplify that psychedelic power, I just don't think it'll yield any sort of successful results. Yeah. And or, or anything I could, you know. It won't grant you any further insight into the, the yeah. The cons I would just say for where I'm at right now in life, um, I have been in worse places and seen brighter experiences. Mm-hmm. So it's just um, it's a headspace thing, and it, you know I would also argue that it's just as much about your body because biologically, you know, think of it biologically. I hadn't eaten anything. I hadn't slept much. My day was going the wrong way. I was tired from work and all my shit got pushed back and I was just overall exhausted. And then I did mushrooms, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Probably didn't think that out. Biologically speaking. So, you know, for a lot of reasons, I feel like I kind of deserved the bad trip I got, but... Um, I still don't, I still wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy, what I experienced, you know, it was a, it was really hard to, to get out of. And, uh, anyone who's had a bad trip knows exactly what I am talking about. Maybe not the existentialism, maybe not the universe cold, cold gaze looking back at you. Um, but, uh, a darkness, uh, a, a moment of, uh, reflection and mortality and pointlessness. See, I don't know what I would. So I, I assume <laughs> if you're if you're gonna do acid or shrooms, you take it and then and en- I would absolutely do both of them again at the same time. No, <laughs> okay, absolutely not. What I was gonna say is you you take it and then that's dueling it, dragons, my friends. You engage in some activity. I, so I don't know what in- activity I would engage in. But you barely job- even like getting high. Oh, it and, and I have to I have to watch. I have to watch because if I if I get too high, I just resort to a negative place. That's existential fear. That's that's. Oh, come a, on, man! And it isn't caused by the high. It is just. Your life. It rises. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's and that's tough because uh, because I feel like you, uh, out of a lot of people I know, would benefit from the um, medicinal qualities of weed. Um, sure, yeah. Maybe a, a little bit more. Is that how many more pages we have? I don't think. Yes, it is. There's no way. <laughs> no, no, no. This is a really long story. This is like this is an ongoing series. These episodes is like a season. It is. It's a season. You you have a season, right? That's now. fucking badass. I got you on a season order. <laughs> this is a great contract. And cheap I wrote too. Up. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, get no. Uh, take I, off all your clothes. What I was gonna say is, if I ever if I ever decided to take a trip, I guess I'd want to listen to the music I love. I I would say there are two things that can save you. From any bad high. And it's food and music. Yeah. Food and music. Music you will always emote to. You know, um, visuals can be too much sometimes. Mm-hmm. That if you just close your eyes and feel the waves of the music. Like, 
I think I put on Childish Gambino the last time I had a good trip. And dude, it was like a party the entire time. You know, it just, I, I literally just set a huge playlist for like three hours and it just, it was an experience. I, I, um, at points I was like standing up, walking around singing at other points I was sitting down watching the music video and just kind of jiving with it. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is of course food. Um, if you're distracted and tasting the flavors of the world and, you know, enjoying all the good things there are to enjoy as a a human being. Um, that being said, I don't, I, I don't think I've ever had sex on either acid or mushrooms and I don't know if I would want to, I don't think so. And, um, high, yes, high all the time because that's just your body feeling things, which is why I say, uh, I feel bad when you have a a bad weed high because, because of just how you think. Um, because I feel like if you just got a little bit more high, you wouldn't think at all. High more often, you mean? No, I just, I mean more high. To the point of? To the point of stupor. Wow. Euphoria. That's the stoner culture, man. It's built off of a stereotype of euphoria, constant euphoria. Just like, wow, everything tastes great. Everything is funny. Everything is stupid. Everything is nothing. <laughs> it's, yeah, that's something that I've never gotten never to. Never experienced? Let me tell you, it's pretty great. <laughs> I feel like I'm there right now. I'm just really, uh, I enjoyed our food. I enjoy the company. I enjoy the conversation. Uh, and I'm stoned to the bone. This is lots of pasta. <laughs> Episode oh. 106. And uh, Tenron Otrin is here and he is sober. And I am Captain Death, stone to the bone. <laughs> Add me on Snapchat. <laughs> what's, your, what's your tag? Um, it's, I'll spell it out and then yeah. you, you write it down, viewers, because uh-huh. I'm not going to spoil the fun for you. A-L, it's all lowercase, A-L-F-A-K-E-N-Y-B-U-D-Y. I didn't get that. Yeah, you're not going to get it by spelling it, so you have to write it out. I have to write it out, And I can't change this. I've tried to change it because I look like a fool to people who add me. Okay. Um, Unless they, like, add me by... A-L. A-L-F-A. A-L-F-A. It's all one word. A-L-F-A. C, oh, sorry, K E N Y B U D Y. Try pronouncing it. I'll fake nigh buddy. Now, now try to break Did I spell it. it right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now try breaking it into three words and pronounce it like six syllables. Alf. Six syllables. Alpha. Kenny. Yeah. Buddy? Yeah, then I say it quickly. <laughs> fuck anybody. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck anybody. <laughs> oh, that makes no sense, and I love it. <laughs> I'll fake anybody. No, I'll fuck anybody. I know, but that's just how it comes across. Oh, I'll fake anybody? I'll uh, fake anybody. I'll fake any of you fakers. 
I'll, I'll fake anybody. You, you know what? Fake but you. But I'll fuck anybody. Fake you, faker. Fake you. <laughs> fake you. Fake you. You're just from the middle, you're, uh, Midwest. You ever, you ever play hey, um, fake you. Heavy Rain? Yeah. Hi, my name is Norman. I'm looking for the origami killer. Ah, <laughs> uh, I can do this, Norman. Uh, gotta just get to a, a sink. That's that's a terrible impression. <laughs> Hi, I'm Norman. Hi, Scott Shelby. God damn it. <laughs> God damn it. Jason. Jason. Sean. So, son, stay by your dad, son. Sean. <laughs> Sean. Do you ever? Did you ever get the end of the game glitch? Where he just says Sean. The Where entire you can keep yelling Sean the entire time. <laughs> you're like sitting in the cage and you're just like Sean. In the background, like the action scene is going on. And you could just hear Sean. Sean. <laughs> uh, I've I YouTubed that, but. Oh, Django and I did that in high school. <laughs> Very fun. Because uh. he had one of those uh, newfangled PS. Was it PS3? It was yeah. PS3. He had one of them newfangled PS3s, and I did not. So he brought it over to my house, and we sat down here, right there, and uh, played through all of Heavy Rain. <laughs> wow, in and, one night? And I think, uh, no, I think two. Okay. He That's left and came back, or or we, we did half one week, and the next, we, we waited a week, and then okay. came back and did the rest. It's, it's and I actually, I talked about his, I talked about this on his last episode. He was, um... He was 105. We've been reading Baraska. So, like, we're reading Baraska at the same time you and I are, wow, uh, you know, meandering through <laughs> the left-right game. This is a season. This is a season. We're not joking. There are a lot of pages left. <laughs> Do you want to get into it? Let's or is there anything you wanted to say? We've really fucking talked about some heavy shit so far. And this this story, I think... Is just gonna get heavy. Or <laughs> you think? You I'm think hoping. it's gonna be intimate? You think uh, it's going to be chaotic? I don't know. Are you going to be hurt by characters' decisions? Uh, me personally, no. Oh, um, okay. Well, I don't know. Shit. I mean, oh, we had voices. For we these did characters. have voices. I'm literally looking at them, and uh, I think I remember mine. I remember your... your you want to do a sound off? Okay. okay. I remember Rob being an old man. You know, you just can't talk. You know, yep. get, get in my truck and touch, the, the touch my... The guy from Men in Black, what was his name? Ah, Riptorn. Ah, that fucking... <laughs> what's, intergalactic kegger down here. And Alice... Yeah. Alice is just a... Well, Alice, Alice was British. Alice is just... Yep. Something, a bit of this and... You didn't remember your accent? Not really. Uh, I think. Uh, Bonnie and Clyde. I see some text. Bonnie and Clyde are from the Midwest, and I do remember that being a point. Right, right there, Bonnie. Oh yeah, I remember that. I remember that real well. Apollo is like, hey, you know, Rob, you're just joking. <laughs> that guy like and laughs thought, a little bit. And, I thought, oh, you're right. You're yeah, right. Apollo is the guy who just laughs a little bit and like, oh, it's rough, but. <laughs> I think Eve was like my Aubrey Plaza voice. I think I was just like, nothing you can say would make me surprised right now with your little drivey car game. Lilith was kind of like a counter to that. She was... She was like, really? Uh, okay, uh, Alice, uh, there's something 
weird about uh, kind of mousy, but uh, kind of like a Fred, a, a Fred Armisen. Oh, like a Fred Armisen girl, kind of. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I love I love Fred Armisen in Portland. He's, yeah, uh, he's okay. Lance, Lance, wake up, Lance, wake up. <laughs> uh, Blue Jay, Blue Jay is uh, an old woman that I think I just kind of like. I'm just old, and you know that's just how I'm gonna talk. I'm an old woman. Yeah, that's I forget I forgot that. She doesn't talk that much. Ace was kinda like a my version of a, a gruffly little voice deeper. I think Ace was uh Ace was like a New Yorker, wasn't he? Yeah. Well come on, Rob. Uh uh, I, I, I remember see, him I gotta being, see the text. I, I remember him being this. young. He was young. He's driving a sports car. He thinks the idea of a good car to, to do the left-right game is a sports car. Okay. So he was like, hey, Rob, get off my fucking case, all right? Oh, okay, do yeah. Do you remember I, that? I think it was... You're right. You're right. Your Apollo was deeper, I think. You're right. Apollo was deeper. I know and that. And you were also Chuck, the radio man. Thanks for listening in on the radio, folks. And oh, we're and gonna that was haunt creepy. you all night. Yeah, like creepy. I fucking loved that shit. That was you did real good. I was the gray woman, which I don't remember the voice of, and I hope she doesn't come back. Well, she scared me. Well, she was, she was very odd. Yeah. She said vent. She said very many things that made me very confused. She called Alice a whore or something like that. Did she? she I thought she was just trying. Oh. Turn back. Something creepy like that, to that effect. Yeah, like you shouldn't, you shouldn't be here, which always resonates on these stories, man. I love the you shouldn't be here. It it boasts such a master plan. Yeah. It does. It, it it says like, oh well, now we're gonna find out why she shouldn't be here. <laughs> the next two hundred pages. Oh, she shouldn't be here. I don't. There's really that many pages left. I thought you deleted the number last time, and I did. You could tell that we're starting off somewhere else. It's just, uh, it's gonna be one, two, three, four, five more parts. Yeah, it'll be great. <laughs> Still a lot. It'll be great. But I'm glad. I'm always glad to have you back. This is, yeah, I mean, this is part of the contract. This is part of the contract. Narrator is, he begins each post saying, you know, um, this is where Alice did this, and it really made me wonder this. Mm-hmm. Okay. The Left-Right Game, episode two. Hello again, guys. I finally got around to posting the next log. I would have put this up sooner, but unfortunately I've had bikes to repair, and if I don't do it, the customer's might go online and discover it's not actually that hard. I want to thank you again for the help you've given me in finding Alice. The guy who said he'd track down the mirror shop is giving me regular updates on his progress, and I've received a whole lot of help going through American Missing Persons reports. It turns out, Alice's, sorry, place of employment, that'd be more better, that'd be more better, yeah, that's, there I go, fuck. Uh, it turns out Alice's place of employment has not heard from her either. And they're going through emails for Rob's submission to the show. Everyone's been really helpful, so thank you. I've got to say, I'm sleeping worse since this whole thing began. It's strange to think that all the time Alice was out of contact, I was perfectly content. Yet now that she's got back in touch every day, I don't hear from her. It makes me that much more worried. 
That's assuming, of course, that it was her who sent me the email. I really hope it was. Thanks again, everyone. And please, let me know if you find anything. The left-right game, uh, draft one, on September 2nd of 2017. Nice. <laughs> I said nice. I already <laughs> fucked up. Rice. Non-perishable. Soy sauce. Non-perishable. Salt. Non-perishable. Eggs. Well, they're perishable, but I bought them fresh. And I got hard-boiled. That'll last a week. It's breakfast time. Oh, sorry. It's breakfast time. The start of our, full, <laughs> our first full day on the road. I think we just read regular. I think we just read regular, and then you did the actual dialogue in British. You're right. I'm breaching contract. <laughs> <laughs> you better stop that spinoff right now. <laughs> it's breakfast time. The start of our first full day on the road. Rob's been up since 7 o'clock cooking a meal for anyone who wants it. The aroma pulls us out of our makeshift beds and arranges us around his portable stove. Our bowls are already full before we realize there's a catch. The trade-off for this supposedly free food? A ten-minute lecture from Rob about the power of rice. See, in the Pacific, our guys used to be terrified of the Japanese. Whole armies marching on grains. Thought they were super soldiers. See, the Japs know the secret. You give people rice in the morning, and they're going for the whole day. After dropping two large spoonfuls of his favorite staple into the bowl and handing it to me, Rob breaks a raw egg over the top. The yolk clouds over as I stir in it. Start stir it in. To be fair, the food is delicious, and it's fun to watch Rob on his soapbox. At least there are some things he's willing to talk at length about. I stare across the circle at Lilith, Lilith and Eve. The latter has spilled rice onto her top, and her friend is teasing her playfully. Eve sees me looking over, meets my gaze, and turns back to Lilith, her tone dramatically muted. I return to my food, making a point to seem attentive to Rob's speech. A minute later, the two girls decided they've finished their meals, and I quickly realize so have I. Devouring the last few bites, I place my bowl in the small tub of hot water next to the stove and casually wander over their, to their car. Lilith and Eve are facing away from me, silently packing up their sleeping bags. They refuse to look at me once I reach them, in a deep, deeply conspicuous attempt at subtlety. Uh, is he watching? I glance over at Rob. He's still talking at Bonnie, Clyde, and Apollo, asking them to guess what breakfast translates to in Japanese. I think we're fine. So, did you see the car? Without answering, Eve reaches into the back seat and picks up a MacBook, the repository for all of the Paranormicon's footage. She presses play as Lilith and I huddle around her, blocking the view of any potential onlookers. The footage depicts a familiar road. Lilith and Eve must have dropped off the hitchhiker and just made the next corner. I can hear them talking about the experience, both terrified and thrilled at the events of the, of the day. Eve reminds Lilith that they need to look out for the car, and Lilith swears, and the camera immediately starts scouring the roadside. Look, there it is. Oh, I see it. Slow down, slow down. The abandoned car comes into view, with Eve slowing to a crawl and Lilith maxing, maxing out her camera's zoom function. A precious few details can be summarily gleaned 
The car's windscreen and driver's side's window are broken. The keys are still in the ignition, and once Eve overtakes the wreck, it's just possible to make out a dark stain soaked into the driver's seat. Stop the car. Just as the video Eve starts to slow to a halt, the real Lilith shuts the laptop. I glance between them, trying to keep my voice as low as possible. You stopped the car? I mean, yeah. We know you told us not to, but it was like really weird. So I went over and you got out of the car? For the record, I was super against it. Anyway, there wasn't much in there that we didn't get from the road, except there was a bag on the back seat. Did you get a look inside? Yeah, but do you want to... Lilith nods her head towards the back of the car. It takes me a second to realize what she's getting at. It's in the boot? The boot? It's in the boot? (laughs) (laughs) So they call a trunk. It's in the boot? (laughs) It's in the what? It's in the trunk? (laughs) That was... uh, Yeah, obviously, we couldn't just leave it there. (laughs) Look, you can watch the rest of the footage anytime. We'll even send it to you, but you need to look in the back before we hit the road. I check on Rob once more. He's washing up the bulls and cutlery, exchanging small talk with Bonnie, oblivious to what's transpiring a a mere five meters away. Lilith Lilith and... I can't say the fucking name. (laughs) Lilith and Eve escort me to the trunk reforming our secretive huddle before leave oh, before Eve lifts it open. A brown leather duffel bag sits front and center. It looks expensive but worn, probably a few decades old. The pair gesture for me to unzip it. Oh just just to preface this, I want to say, this whole trip has been fucking weird. The bag isn't exactly full. I rummaged through the loose contents, finding a few good sets, a few sets of good quality men's shirts and a pair of jeans. Further down, I find a small and well-used shaving kit. I'm starting to wonder what Lilith and Eve are so bent out of shape over when my hand hits the edge, the hard edge, of a straight, rectangular object. Slowly and with great care, I manage to uh, extricate it from layers of wool and denim. It's a package, a heavy square block about the length of my forearm, neatly wrapped in brown paper. It seems completely unassuming except for a black wire hanging from the underside, leading back into the bag itself. Lifting the wire, a black plug rises out and swings slightly in midair. Turn it around. With both girls watching me intently, I turn the package in my hands. The wire connects to the charging port of an old Nokia 3210, which in turn is, is superglued to the package along with a few shards of exposed circuit board. Last, but certainly not least, are the words emblazoned on the brown paper in imposing black typeface, C4 Explosive. My mouth feels dry. I wasn't expecting that. I know, fuck this road, right? There was tons more in his trunk too, it was insane. Is this, is this dangerous? Not right now. It's basically inert, unless you have the detonator. You're sure? We have Wikipedia downloaded on a hard drive. It's the only reason Eve let me bring it here. She read the article like three times. Anyway, the Nokia is out of battery. Okay, well, I'm not even going to ask how you know that. I don't get this. Why would somebody 
bring plastic explosive for the left-right game. I mean, what the hell are we heading into? I have no idea. But do you know if Rob has any? If I have any what? When I look up, Rob's only a few steps away from us. I hide the C4 behind my back, dropping it into my satchel next to my notebook. I just manage to pull my fingers out of the way as Eve instinctively slams the trunk shut. Uh, tips for sleeping in cars. These guys had a rough night. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. Just something you gotta get used to, I guess. We're hitting the road in 15, 20 minutes. That alright with you guys? Yeah, totally. Bristol, you mind helping me pack up? Not at all. Painfully aware of what's hanging at my side, I step away with Rob towards the now dismantled stove. Looking over my shoulder, I see Lilith and Eve are watching us go, their faces awash with apprehension. I can't say I feel the same. Despite my surroundings and the multitude of unsettling events, I don't have space in my head for apprehension just now. All anxiety is slowly being pushed out, its territory annexed by a bolstering sense of resolve. There are far too many strange things happening on this road, and even if it kills me, I'm going to find out what they all mean. Hey, Rob, can I talk to you? <laughs> Apollo's the laughy oh, one. Fuck. Rob uh, aces or, the, uh, the young dickhead. Okay, you're right. Um, it's in my contract to apologize. Really sorry. Uh, <laughs> hey, Rob, can I talk to you? Hey, Rob, can I talk to you? <laughs> Rob, can I talk to you? God, this is fucking... This is like... Like, Rob, can I talk to you? That was good. That was good. Dude, voice actors, fucking 20 <laughs> times for one line like that. I did it in four. You did it in three. <laughs> We've packed everything in the back of the Wrangler, and are about to get us back on the road when Ace comes up behind us. Rob turns around, and I sense an icy shield raising up as he curtly addresses our compatriot. What is it, Ace? Can I... Can I ask you something? It's, uh... It's okay if you need me to go home after. The shield thaws. This isn't the Ace we've seen before, and Rob's perceptive enough to notice. He engages, albeit cautiously. What do you want to ask? Ace shuffles uncomfortably. Suddenly, he seems much younger. Does the hitchhiker... Does anything happen if you... If you don't pick him up? God damn it, Ace! I told you, you... You can't! Tell me what happened. I... I was making my way down the road, and I, I was angry at how you'd been. And when I saw the hitchhiker, I thought I should... You know... Do what I said and just drive by. Ace starts to tremble, unable to meet Rob's eye. A minute later, I look in the rearview mirror and and he's sitting in the back of the car. He's just he's just talking about the weather. I mean, I swear I didn't pick him up, but when I think about it, all these memories come back. I start to remember pulling over, letting him in. It's like I did it, but I I didn't even. Did you talk to him? No, no, no. I promise. I didn't say a word. 
Rob stares at Ace in silence. Ace hangs his head like a like a penitent criminal facing judgment. Feels awful, don't it? Ace finally looks up, confused at Rob's words, searching the man's expression for clues. I did the same as you the first time. Just drove right by. Wasn't gonna let some stranger in my car. Nearly jumped out of my skin when I saw him in the rear view. Rob grins at Ace, who manages to smile shakily back. You ain't got the right gear for this, Ace. I like to run a tight ship, and I gotta say it pissed me off. If you want to turn that Porsche of yours around, no one will think any less of you, but if you want to keep on this road... How about you try to listen more, and I'll try to be less of a hard-ass. Rob holds out his hand for Ace to shake. It's an offer of peace, or at the very least, an offer of terms. Ace accepts it, grimacing only slightly as he faces Rob's iron grip. About time we hit the road. Five minutes later, we're rolling into a deep valley, each member of the convoy appearing over the crest of the hill behind us. Everyone's present and accounted for, including Ace. I have to say, <laughs> I'm impressed. With what? With how you handled Ace. One might presume a guy who's been divorced four times isn't the best at conflict resolution. Divorce is conflict resolution. That's a good point. He seemed to be saying the hitchhiker made him pull, made him pull over. Is that... Really, what happens? Yep. He always ends up in the back seat, and you always remember picking him up. It's just not. It's that's not scientifically possible. Get used to that. We spend the next two hours in silence, with me typing up my notes and Rob navigating the sparse few turns that show up every now and then. Ace's testimony troubles me. Perhaps because it stretches my favorite theory that the game is an elaborate hoax perpetuated by Rob Guthard. Or Rob Guthard. <laughs> Guthard. Guthard. Or Guthard. 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 Rob Guthard. Perpetuated Rob by Guthard. Rob Guthard. I, I was content that, that the hitchhiker could have been an incredibly deft performer. But even if the man was a, a rider. A rider. A rider. Even if the man. Trained thespian. But even if the man was a a R-A-D-A trained thespian, <laughs> don't read me for the Lord, that doesn't make him capable of mind control. Ace could be insane or maybe an actor himself, but those ideas sound exactly like the idle rationalizations I decried in Rob earlier. I'm not sure what my theory is at the moment. I, I, I keep working, hoping to type my way to revolution. A few lone trees have started the show up, in the distance, towering wild pines with trunks as thick as barrels. Without my noticing, the trees grow slowly more numerous, and, in that creeping way that landscapes change, it isn't long until they span both sides of the road, encapsulating us in a deep, bright forest. Realizing I've recorded everything of substance, and with Rob concentrating on the drive, I have no choice but to lay back in my seat and watch the world roll by. Despite the pervasive strangeness of the left-right game, there is beauty on the road.
There's beauty in the world. Beauty is truth. Beauty is truth. And truth can be found in beauty. That was me, not the text. American Beauty. That's a good movie. Am I allowed to say that? Yeah, I like it. I like Kevin Spacey. <laughs> Fuck you, dude. You're such a fucking... You're <laughs> complicit with evil. You're right. <laughs> yeah. You're right. It's a good movie, though. I do like that movie. It was a good movie. Um, I like Kevin Spacey, though. I like his acting a lot. I, I truly do. I think he's a great actor, and I always liked him in... What's it called? House of Cards. Unusual Suspects. He is good. It's a good movie, too. That's a throwback. Uh, shout out to my mom for introducing me to that movie and American Beauty. Nice. You know, it's my mom. The mother of Tenron. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. Under the light shade of the canopy... Now, remember, we're in a, we're in a bright forest. Under the light shade of canopy... The smell of pine needles permeating the still air. I actually feel myself starting to relax. I got that feel from a like a blue mountain kind of territory. You know? Like a you ever been to the ridge? The ridge. Down in like North Carolina, Blue Ridge? No. Nope. Something's just real fucking peaceful about it. Yeah. Mountains, I've man. been up to the Adirondacks in upstate New York and that's similar? Yeah, it's like when you go to a hike up the mountain, one of the mountains up there. And you just sit on the trail, and it isn't really a good trail. You're climbing rocks, basically, up a mountain. It isn't steep, but it's, it's, it's a hike. But if you just sit on a boulder in the middle of this forest, it's, like, pristine. It's, as you described. I had a similar experience in Alaska. You were in Alaska? I went to Alaska for two weeks. When? 2010. I never... I don't think we've talked about that. I've always... No. Shit was awesome. I've always kind of wanted to go to Alaska. It's very... Uh, it's very dangerous. Yeah, yeah. But also very serene. kind of want to go to um, Greenland. Makes me want to go to Greenland. I know nothing about Greenland. Or Iceland. I know some things about Iceland. Or... Not so dangerous, but it's still pretty... Pretty there. Uh, at least I think... I don't think it's dangerous. Reykjavik. The city? Yeah. Iceland would be cool. I know of an Icelandic band. I, I know a couple. Sigurós? Sigurós. Yeah. Fuck yeah, man. Wow, okay. They're so great. <laughs> I went. I saw them. You saw them? At Madison Square Garden when I was... Holy shit. It was me and my brother and we brought a f- uh, friend. Because my, my dad loved them. My dad used to listen to them. And he got Copypola, Segloplur. He got tickets, and he couldn't go. And he gave them to my brother and I, and we saw them. And that's nothing. Would eclectic be the best way to describe them? Um. Yeah, but I would also just say that they're more of a um. They're almost like uh like Icelandic house music, you know. They're very. They're very ballady. They're very loud most of the time. I mean, nothing song is very quiet, but um, that's an outlier. Um, it's a lot of sustained, like phrases and notes. Yeah. And their lyrics, and they're just—it's hard to compare them to something in in the countries. Oh, yeah. I don't think I could. I think 
nowadays, probably back when Imagine Dragons was quieter and not as annoying. Uh-huh. Okay. I'd say that that's a close example. Yeah, that's... Radioactive a- and, and you know, uh, About Time are, like, two completely different songs, you know, or, uh, shit. Their entire first album's all over the place, man, and that's kind of how uh, Sigur Ross feels. Anyway, we should yeah. hit, the, hit the story. So, we're in a forest. I actually feel myself starting to relax. It only takes three words to change that. The words don't come from Rob, he's as quiet as always. They aren't spoken by the rest of the convoy, either. The words are writ large in calligraphic gold paint, resting on a spotless white sign. Even from a distance, with the letters little more than a blur, I know what they're going to say. They're the words I've been dreading since I switched off the radio. The words I spent a long, troubled night hoping I'd never see. Welcome to Jubilation! It turns out, there is room in my head for apprehension. This is Ferryman to all cars. We're going to be heading through a small town. No rules here, just keep driving, and we'll be fine. Rob puts his radio back into the receiver. I try to ignore the distinct knot in my stomach. What does the name Chuck Greenwald mean to you? About as much as John Doe. Why? He's the uh, radio DJ here. In Jubilation? How do you know something like that? I was listening to his show last night. What do you know about this place? Seems like a good town. Folk don't pay attention to you. I just head straight through. You've never seen anything untoward? Some weird stuff now and again. I like to keep my eyes on the road. The forest clears abruptly like a parting curtain to reveal a picture-perfect American town, archetypal almost to the point of self-parody. We've arrived in jubilation. You know what this is starting to remind me of a little bit? You ever uh, see the Tim Burton flick Big Fish? I know... Wait, Big Fish, like... The The movie, Big Fish. What's it about? A guy's dad is dying, and on his deathbed he explains his entire life story, but it's fantastical and fun, and Ewan McGregor's really great, and his life is magical and crazy, and then at the end of it... I've seen the musical. Oh, okay, cool. I did forget it was a musical. Um, the, uh, the movie is fantastic. I haven't seen them. But there's, um, there are points of it where you get Tim Burton-esque horror, and, um, and it's very cool, and I feel like, um, the story is almost like, uh, that on acid. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> there's no denying that this town is beautiful. We're welcomed by a row of vibrantly colored shops spanning the length of a long, wide street. At the far end, an an ornate, gray-walled town hall proudly surveys its domain. The place is immaculate. I failed to find a solitary piece of litter on the sidewalk, a single smudge on the plate glass shop windows. Every inch of jubilation is pristine, tranquil, and 
noticeably deserted. Where is everyone? I don't know. There's usually some around. Maybe there's a game on. We take the next right, and then another left. The story is the same at every turn, a beautiful, leafy suburban town, entirely bereft of its human population. The cafes are free of bustle, the surface of the public pool is still. We even see the school, a row of finger-painted faces smiling at us from the kindergarten windows as we pass by. That's creepy. The building itself is locked up, however, which is odd, seeing as it's noon on a Wednesday. Eventually, the Wrangler pulls onto the first residential street we've encountered. The sign on the corner reads Sycamore Row. The quaint shops are replaced by luxuriant houses, all of them identical. White walls, wide porches, and fresh green lawns cut to a uniform length. The road stretches in a straight line for about a mile, creating an eerie corridor of copy-pasted buildings. The strangest thing about the street, however, is vocalized by Rob. Well, I guess we know where everybody is now. In front of every house, a dining room table stands on the lawn, occupied without fail by a family of four. One husband, one wife, one son, one daughter. They're they're sharing a meal together. A unit on the left clink their glasses of orange juice as they dine on pork chops and salad. The family on the right shares a large hunk of meatloaf broad smiles on their faces. Staring along the road, I estimate upwards of 800 people in neat subsets of four all dining at the same time. And none of them seem to notice us. Ferryman to all cars. Looks like we've come during a town celebration. Let's not bother these good people as we pass on through. Rob lets the car roll slowly down the street his foot light on the gas pedal, trying to make as little noise as possible. The more families we pass, the clearer it becomes that every single one of them shares common characteristics. All of them are impeccably dressed. All of them consist of the same subset, husband, wife, son, daughter. Though their chosen meals vary slightly, they all share a raucous, almost oppressive happiness. Small town America, am I right, guys? Apollo's jokes don't make things any better. I feel claustrophobic, trapped. Some screaming animal deep within me knows that it's surrounded on every side by something it does not understand. Well, you got the road in front of you. Yeah, that's, a, that's all you got. Rob, you got. Rob is onto something. Just keep your eyes on the road. That's where you're going. Put your trust in me, sugar tits. That was a really good frowns impression. <laughs> Put your trust in me, sugar tits. I fuck my ass. <laughs> Lick my anus. I don't know if I'm imagining it, but as we've continued down the road, everyone outside seems to be laughing a little harder and celebrating a little more. We've successfully crept more than halfway down the street, a sharp left turn coming up at the end, representing the road out of jubilation. Another street comes up on the right, Acer Road. While we pass by it, it, I take the opportunity to glance down this new avenue, curious as to whether every street is like ours. I don't like what I see. The houses are similarly prestigious, the walls pristine white. 
but like a spot the difference puzzle. It's the subtle changes that make the picture. There are no tables and no families on the wide green lawns. Almost every window I can see is broken. Cars lie abandoned in the road, with one smashed into a splintered porch. Above every door, an X has been drawn in red paint, and outside of each house, a small mound of clothes lie on the fresh-cut lawn. A huge collective pile of men's, women's, and children's shoes tower at the end of the street, seemingly ownerless. Great going, everybody. Let's get back out there. We've reached the end of the street. I breathe a sigh of relief as we bid farewell, farewell to jubilation. I vindictively see it off in my wing mirror as we turn the corner. I immediately wish I hadn't when, in the split second before it disappears from view, I glimpse the 800-plus residents of Sycamore Row. They are not smiling anymore, and they're all looking our way. I welcome the forest as the trees rise up around us once more. The indifference of the nature is a welcome change to the saccharine Saccharin foul civility of jubilation. Towns like like that make, make me glad I'm a city boy. <laughs> I thought it was nice. Wasn't it like Wintery Bay? Oh, I don't know. I, I don't think I've been. Oh, maybe, maybe it was Shelburne Falls. Oh, it was a little, uh, it was a little like Shelburne Falls. Guys, we gotta keep this channel clear. We hurry along the next road and turn right. The further we get from the eerie town of Jubilation, the higher our spirits seem to be. Uh, how long until we stop? About another four hours. Nothing big in between us and there, though. Shouldn't be a problem. Good to hear. So, um... What does breakfast translate to in Japanese? You heard that. Yeah, I've been curious all day. Does it have something to do with... I jolt forward, sharp pain in my neck as my head recoils back against my seat. Rob has stamped his foot onto the brake, bringing us to an immediate and shocking halt. Before I can ask why, my question is answered, as one of the colossal pine trees slams into the road ahead of us, blocking our route forward. God damn it! You all right? I'm fine. Massaging my neck, I look towards the base of the felled tree. The low end is covered in straight, sharp-cut marks. Someone has brought this tree down, timing its fall in an attempt to cripple the Wrangler. Rob, what is going on? Ferryman to all cars, full reverse. Watch out for the people behind you. The convoy pulls away, back down the road towards jubilation. Rob waits for Apollo to start moving, then backs up himself. There's a second jolt as Rob abruptly stops the car, surveying our means of egress. Ferryman to all cars. Road's done for, but there's a gap at the end. Be careful. Rob's right. Though the tree has fallen across the tarmac, only the thin treetop lies over the grassy bank between the road and the forest. There's a bit of a valley between the edge of the road and the grass, and Rob wastes no time in showing the others how to negotiate it. Twisting the wheel, Rob dry steers toward the gap and proceeds cautiously towards the roadside. I watch the asphalt disappear beneath us moments before the telltale bump. The Wrangler drops down the small bankside and turns around the fallen tree. 
I watched the needle-covered tip brush against my window as we roll past. With a second bump, Rob brings us back onto the road and pulls us over to the far edge, turning the jeep to face towards the convoy. Okay, Apollo, make your way. On it, Rob. As Apollo swerves towards the gap, I hear something. The sound of a running engine, at first so quiet that it's almost impossible to isolate it from the convoy's own rumblings. It's since grown louder, however, and it's growing steadily more noticeable. Rob, someone's coming. Apollo, get yourself over here right now. All cars, you're on double time. Get moving. Apollo accelerates towards the gap. His Range Rover shutters banging on the grassy decline, but it's hardly any effort to pull himself around the tree and back onto the road. The noise in the distance grows louder. I can picture the vehicle careening towards the corner, just one turn away from having its windshield locked on the convoy. Though I have no idea what it might be, I don't want to share road space with anything coming out of jubilation. The rest of the convoy can hear the noise now. Bonnie and Clyde roll over to the gap and quickly but tentatively push themselves down onto the side. It's clearly harder than Rob and Apollo make it look. After a few moments, they travel across the brink, bringing themselves out on the other side. The vehicle turns the corner. A white truck skids into view, its tires shrieking against the road. A metal beam sticks up behind the driver's compartment, and a hook swings with the momentum on the hard right turn. It's a tow truck, though something tells me it's not here to lend us assistance. All cars, once you're on the other side, drive. Wait around the left turn, I'll radio if they get by me. What about you guys? I'll come once everyone's across. Now ain't the time for questions. Even Lilith, get over here now. We still have time to get everyone across, but every passing second feels like a precious fleeting loss. Eve and Lilith are impatient for their turn, dropping under the roadside and coming back up in a matter of seconds. The truck is gaining with incredible speed. I can just about make out the words, Jubilation Recovery, scrawled across the hood, though the letters are rapidly becoming easier to read. Blue Jay takes her time dismounting the road. In fact, she's almost casual in how she maneuvers, whittling away at the remaining seconds we have. A swell of anger wells up inside of me as her wheels hit the road again. If she's calm about this situation, then good for her, but I can see Ace drumming his fingers frenetically against the steering wheel, now stranded alone on the other side. I watch Blue Jay follow the rest of the convoy to the next turn, displaying none of the urgency anyone else has shown. Take it easy, Ace. You ain't built for this. Ace takes the corner, heeding Rob's plea for caution, but unwisely taking it almost head on. His front wheel thuds over the edge of the bank, and the, the Cassis hits the, it's the chassis. Tarmac. The drop is just a little too steep for the Porsche's clearance. Rob's warnings ring in my ears as Ace accelerates on three wheels, his car engaging in a slow turn with a little forward motion. Rob, what do I do? Rob! The pickup truck maintains its speed and aligns itself with Ace's Porsche, its thunderous velocity defying all logic, all concern for Ace's or their own safety. Get out of the car, Ace! Get out of the goddamn car! 
Ace struggles with his seatbelt, stress overpowering his motor functions. He unclasps it and throws the belt to the side. He grabs the door and pushes. It swings only slightly, then immediately slams against the bark of the pine tree. For a moment that lasts, it's all too long. He shares with me a look of pleading terror. The door is slammed shut, crumpling as the tow truck collides with the passenger side of Ace's car. Ace is launched against the door, his head smashing against the window. The ungodly racket of shrieking metal suddenly gives way to silence. Shit. Rob climbs into the back of the car. Rob, what can I do? Stay here. I hear Rob rummaging among the luggage as the tow truck reverses out of Ace's Porsche. The hood of the tow truck is completely and impossibly unharmed by the impact, as are its two occupants. They park the truck side onto us, the hook hanging a few meters away from the back of the Porsche. The words of jubilation and recovery appear again, now accompanied by the slogan, Here to help. Two men in white shirts and blue overalls climb out and wander over the ruined Porsche. They barely seem to register the situation at all, casually chatting together as they throw open Ace's passenger side door. The stunned Ace looks like he's battling a concussion, only barely cognizant as he's pulled out of the car. He quickly grows more aware as the mechanics grab him by each arm, struggling against them as his captors talk amongst themselves. Let him go! When I turn around, Rob is stepping out of the Wrangler. Apparently, hidden within those neat stacks of luggage was a loaded hunting rifle. Rob raises the stock to his shoulder and repeats himself. Let him go! The mechanics pay no attention to Rob. They continue to frog march Ace over to the truck. One of them making a quiet joke to the other as they go. They laugh. An awful bang erupts beside me, and a deep red hole bursts from one mechanic's torso, blood slowly seeping out of the wound. Inexplicably, the mechanic does nothing more than a look down at his wound, up at Rob, and then back to the matter at hand. He hardly breaks stride as he continues toward the truck, bleeding freely onto the floor. I hear Rob set about reloading the rifle. The mechanics arrive at the back of the truck with Ace. There are two short loops of thin chain hanging from the lowest of the hook's chain links. The mechanics feed Ace's arm through one loop each until he's hanging by the armpits in front of the hook itself. Rob fires another shot that goes nowhere. The mechanics grab a handful of Ace's hair, chatting as they do so, and lift Ace's head up until his lower jaw is just above the hook. In that moment, despite everything, despite all my journalistic ideals, my pursuit of truth, my duty as an observer, I close my eyes. The visual disappears into darkness, but the sound does not. The impact and the sorrowful, obstructed groan that follows penetrates my bones, reverberating throughout my very being. Another gunshot, and the sharp twang of a metallic ricochet. Ace's cries continue as the engine starts up and carries him off back to jubilation. I hear another gunshot that sounds like it hits off, hits nothing but air. As the engine and Ace's whimpers grow quieter, a few moments pass before one final, measured gunshot echoes around the car. God damn it! God fucking damn it! The Wrangler's chassis clangs as Rob... Chassis! The Wrangler's chassis clangs as Rob kicks aside with all his considerable might. I open my my eyes to see a fallen pine tree, a ruined Porsche, 
and an otherwise empty road. When Rob climbs into the car, it's clear he's trying to regulate his breathing. An internalized rage light lighting up sorry, lighting him up, barely under his control. We have to go. Rob turns us around, pointing the Wrangler back down the road. The quiet of the cars echoes in my ears. Along with other noises, I can't hope to forget. I watch the fallen pine grow smaller in the rearview mirror, overwhelmed by a feeling that I'm leaving more behind on this road than I can currently imagine. Bereft of conversation, of logic, of any semblance of comfort, Rob and I do the only thing we can. We take the next left. That was a pretty nuts part. We lost a, we lost a member. Ace is, Ace is down. Ace, Ace is down Ace for the is play. Down. Repeat, Ace, Ace is, is down. down for the play. It's cool, though. I liked how he died. Yeah, they put the hook in his mouth. Yeah, man. Some real Silent Hill shit right there. Oh, isn't that, like, isn't that cute? I could, like, I could, like put a little red line over <laughs> Ace's name like he's dead. I'm not gonna do that because he might come back, but... You never know. I don't. Any any thoughts you want to share before we jump into the next part? Well, what the hell is jubilation? Jubilation is a glitch in the Matrix, man. It is, um... They are passing through dimensions, dude. Different times, different worlds, different experiences. I think, uh... I think they're already somewhere else. You ever, um... Did you ever read Wrinkle in Time as a kid? Because I don't want to anyone suggest seeing the movie. Uh, either of them. The made-for-TV one in the 90s or the uh, shitty one that just came out. Don't do that. Just read the book. It's very fantastical and magical. And essentially it's just dimension hopping. And, you know, different things happen in different worlds. And that world is just... Um, it's just that town. It's just that area. And it's just... Uh, I don't know quite what it what it was getting at, but I feel like it was slowly uh, imploding on itself, its own its own uh, its own cycle, and it's just a, a town of destruction, you know. Yeah. And uh, they were they were just as out of tune with it, with their own actions, you know. It's a blip. It's a it's a record on repeat that keeps scratching at the same time. Dun, 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 dun. Dun, 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 dun. Mm. You know, that's just how I rationalize it. That's what I think is happening in the story. This road takes you to different places where different things are possible. I think, uh, I think Big Fish is a way is a good way of thinking about it because it's you know, it's a mystical adventure. Yeah. This one's just a mystical road trip. Am I good to begin this next part? Yeah. Hi, guys. Firstly, I want to apologize for not being at my laptop for the past few days. I had to attend a wedding in Scotland for one of my uni friends. They booked it in midweek, and between you and me, I don't think it's going to last, which means not only have I neglected you guys, but I've also wasted money on a rental suit and a John Lewis tea set. As always, thank you for your help in my ongoing attempt to find Alice. 
I'm now in full contact with the radio show she was working for, and they'll be sending over Rob's submission to the show as soon as they can. I've also looked up every town named Jubilation and have contacted residents from each of them, and none of them have the particular junction mentioned in the previous log, Sycamore Row and Acer Street. I even combed Google Maps to make sure I'm not sure what town Alice passed through last February, but it doesn't seem to exist on public record. The guy who promised to retrace the route from the mirror shop came through and he sent me a few possible addresses for Rob. He also mentioned looking into the game itself more. I'm not sure what he means by that, but I want to be clear, please don't play this game on my behalf. I don't want that on my conscience. Without further ado, here's the following log. Thanks again. The Left Right Game Draft 1, October 2nd, 2017. I want to address you, the listener, for a moment with an advance notice concerning the following episode. I'm sure it's not been lost on you that every installment of this series so far has played host to some strange, unexplainable occurrence and spanned a great many miles of travel. It goes without saying that this has been by design. I've been summarizing the countless hours of uneventful meandering and taking extra care to document the strange phenomena we've encountered along the way. I wanted the story to be fast-moving to have a real feel of progress with every chapter. If that sense of exploratory intrigue is why you're listening to this show, I completely understand. I'm certain it's a primary draw for almost all of you, the twists, the turns, the mysterious, strange encounters along an impossible road. But if that is the case, I feel it's my duty to inform you that apart from a few noticeable exceptions, there will be almost no ground covered in this segment, and the monsters we encounter will be all too human. Stress, divisiveness, discomfort, and, as one might imagine, grief. If you want to read the synopsis of this episode on the website and wait for the next part, then you'll be all caught up and I'm sure we'll be back on our way heading once more into the great unknown, but I feel it's important to give the aftermath of Ace's capture its own episode, in part due to the significance of the revelations that are unearthed in its wake, but also as a gesture of deference to the man we lost. This is the story of our second night on the road. As we make the left turn, the horrifying space behind us is quickly replaced by a quiet emptiness ahead. The Wrangler crawls defeated towards the waiting convoy. The remaining four cars are parked haphazardly, taking up more than half the road. Rob drifts to the far end of the tarmac, looking to overtake and resume formation, both of his hands resting on the steering wheel, his eyes fixed on some distant point in space. It's not hard to imagine that behind the focus and the quiet control, there's a man in turmoil, a man who can't bring himself to say anything in fear of saying too much. This is Bristol to all cars. We're heading back on the road. Get yourselves in formation and make way for those around you. We've got a while to drive before we stop for the night. Bristol, where's... Oh, where's Ferryman? Ferryman's here. Where's Ace? Ace? Ace is... Ace? 
didn't make it across. Uh, what? What the fuck? Bristol, where is he? It would be simple to describe what had taken place, or at least summarize the barest facts, what happened to Ace, where he is now, why he isn't coming back. But for some reason I can't utter a word about what's transpired, something about the event itself makes it impossible to retell. As if the requisite phrases have been locked behind glass. We need to get to the stopping point. It isn't safe to stay here. Shortly after we turned the corner out of Sycamore Row, Rob implied that the rest of the day's drive would be uneventful. Had he waited just a few minutes longer, he would have been entirely correct. We're on the road for another four hours, both of us quietly attending to our own preoccupations as the forest gradually thins out. The landscape gives way to rolling cornfields that stretch out beyond the horizon on both sides. Nothing notable happens, which is ironic as I find myself typing up a lot more notes than I need. With the sun descending through an orange sky as we pull into a clearing beside a wild grove of apple trees, Rob turns off the ignition and the two of us sit in silence. Rob's need to concentrate on driving had been a good excuse to stay quiet. A good excuse to not face each other. Now the wheels aren't turning, however, and the true reason for our mutual reticence is all too clear. Do you think he's dead? I don't know. Rob's response isn't reassuring, and I'm oddly grateful for that. There are no comforting words he can give me, and any attempt would have seemed horrifically insincere, a mockery of the situation's onerous gravity. Anyway, given the circumstances of Ace's capture, I'm not even sure which answer I want to hear. Lilith appears at my window, wrapping her knuckles against the glass with an aggressive impatience I'd expect nothing less about now. Everyone in the convoy has made to follow a unilateral order, my order, without explanation. They've been traveling for hours, accompanied by the glaring absence of another human being. Looking in the wing mirror, I glimpse the rest of the convoy standing by their cars, watching the Wrangler expectantly. Rob's hand still hasn't left the wheel. With a sharp intake of breath, I push the door open and step out onto the grass. The ground is soft below me as I walk over to the group. There's recently been rain. I begin to address the rough semicircle. It almost feels like one of Rob's briefings. What's happening, Bristol? Uh, did, did Ace turn back? I meet Apollo's eyes. For the briefest of moments, I consider telling them it all exactly that. Maybe it would save them from the slow, heavy ache that's currently weighing down my chest. Maybe it would just save me from a difficult conversation. Either way, I know I can't lie to them, and they deserve this, the truth, however unpleasant. No. He didn't turn back. They crippled his car. The tow truck? Did he get out? The answer doesn't come easily. I'm being pressed to say the words aloud and in doing so to fully acknowledge what happened. 
It feels like I'm being driven to a funeral, like I'm being verbally marched towards an open casket. What happened to him? Bristol, he's dead, Eve. I hadn't heard Rob step out of the car when he reaches the group. It's hard to hide my relief as he takes over proceedings addressing the group matter-of-factly. Now it really is like one of his briefings. Two guys in the tow truck coming out of jubilation. They got him. They took him back with them to the town. The way they were treating him, he won't last long. Oh, goodness. What? Rob, what are they going to do to him? I can't tell you. Nothing like this ever happened before. Well, we need to go back. <laughs> that ain't gonna happen. We're not going to fucking abandon him, Lilith. We're going back! No. We're not. Uh, me and Rob can go. You know the place, right, Rob? The kid's dead, Apollo. But he was alive when you last saw him. That's right. So what point did you decide he was dead? When I saw him being carried away with a fucking toe hook sticking out of his mouth. God damn it. Rob shouldn't have said that. I understand his reasons, of course. He wants to convey an important truth that nothing can be done or could have been done to save Ace. His ghastly choice of words does the job, but it also sends a ripple of disturbance through the crowd, planting in everyone's minds the gruesome image I've been trying all day to uproot. Bonnie covers her mouth in shock and sorrow, Eve turns noticeably pale, and even Lilith, who is intent on leading the questioning, is taken aback. Did... did you see this, Bristol? I nod, solemnly. The group bristles at my affirmation. I... I saw enough. I had to close my eyes when it happened. Rob tried to save him until... Before I can finish my statement, my words are cut off by something truly unexpected. In spontaneous response to my words, a harsh outburst of mocking, sarcastic laughter rings out from within the convoy. One by one, we turn towards its source until we all find ourselves staring at Blue Jay. Her unapologetic chuckling fills the silent night air. Is something funny, Blue Jay? Blue Jay tries to speak through her all-too-slowly waning laughter. <laughs> it's just, you, you call yourselves a journalist. <laughs> you closed your eyes. My God. There it is. There it is. I'm sorry? Do you close your eyes for magic tricks, too? What the fuck, Blue Jay? Come on, this isn't the time. Oh, the time is well fucking overdue. Seriously, are you all morons? The left-right game is a hoax. It's fake. Rob Guthard's played you all like fucking children. Ace is fine. He's probably an actor. 
like the hitchhiker was an actor and those townspeople too, I mean, come on. The group is taken aback by Blue Jay's incredulous tirade. She's clearly been holding her tongue since day one, our reaction to Ace's capture representing just one step too far. I saw Rob shoot one of those townspeople with a hunting rifle. I saw the wound. It was real. It was a blood-filled squib. The rifle was probably loaded with blanks. You can buy both from any good theatrical retailer. Seriously, what the, what the fuck is wrong with you people? Okay, firstly, I don't like your fucking tone. Secondly, have you noticed that we've been the only cars on the road for almost two days? And what about jubilation? Are you suggesting Rob hired out a whole town? That would be fucking impossible. Oh yeah, sure, that's, that's impossible. But it's totally believable that we're driving on a magic road. Maybe this is the highest budget scam I've ever seen, but that's all it is, a scam. And Al Jazeera here is giving him all the publicity he wants. I mean, these people are sheep, but you, you're a fucking sycophant. My mother used to tell me that you can't strike a person from the high road. Staring down the barrel of Blue Jay's darkly self-satisfied grin, I'm more than tempted to make the descent. Okay, Blue Jay, fair enough. I'm not going to pretend to know what's going on here. For all I know, you could be right. But why would Rob spend the production budget of a Hollywood film to trick a radio journalist and two vloggers? Trust me, our website does not get enough traffic. Oh, don't be so self-important. It's not you. He's trying to fool. Blue Jay turns to Rob, fixing him a glare of pure, unadulterated triumph. Admit it, Rob. Admit it that this is all a fucking farce. Admit that you knew who I was before I even got out of my car. Rob's face looks like it's been carved from granite. The group looks to him for an answer, but he delivers his response directly to Blue Jay, his eyes locked with hers. It's true. I know who you are, Denise. The atmosphere changes, and for a moment, the night erupts into a foray of whispers. Rob's answer clearly means something to everyone but me. Denise? Denise Carver? No. You serious? I'm sorry, who's... who's... <laughs> Denise Siri Carver? I don't know, man. Folks, Siri just engaged on my phone without any <laughs> proper activation. I shut the phone off. And I'm I'm sliding it on the carpet about 20 feet away. It, it only reached about 7 feet. Okay. I'm sorry, who's Denise, Denise Carver? She's the biggest killjoy in the hobby. Oh, fuck you, you fucking airhead. <laughs> <laughs> I really like Blue Jay's character has completely turned around and I feel like I could just really tap into my the way my granny curses. Oh fuck you, you fucking airhead. <laughs> you fucking bimbo. You fucking piece of shit. 
Denise here is a member of the Skeptics and Rationalist Institute of America. She likes to get herself invited on ghost hunting expeditions under a false name so she can debunk them publicly. You may have gathered she don't believe in the supernatural. Actually, I do believe in the supernatural. I believe that it's a billion-dollar industry built on selling comfortable lies to the gullible, and it thrives on shitty journalists and attention to whore bloggers who are willing to spread whatever shit they think will get them clicks. That's why you took so long getting around the pine tree, even when the truck was coming for Ace. You didn't think any of it was real. Ah, did you? As condescending as her delivery may be, her words spark a sudden realization. It's true. That with an unspeakably high budget and a few deft stooges, you could probably replicate most of what we'd seen on the road. Yet, without realizing it, I've found myself agreeing with Rob's version of events personally defending the left-right game's validity against its decriers. I'd set off on this journey, much like Blue Jay, as a staunch, confident skeptic, but somewhere between the tunnel and this moment, I'd become a believer. Blue Jay notes my lack of protest and turns back to Rob. I'm flattered you went through all this trouble. I didn't know my work was so offensive to you. I admire your work, Denise, always have. That's why I brought you along. That is bullshit. Tell your friend Ace he can't act for shit. Blue Jay pulls a pack of Marlboros out of her coat, lighting up immediately, and goes to sit on the hood of her nearby car. Her demeanor clearly signals that her part in the conversation is over, though her words leave a bitter aftertaste for everyone involved. To sympathize, it must be exhausting spending two days with people whose opinions are diametrically opposed to your own. Having to listen in silence while they corroborate their own seemingly preposterous views. Having said that, however, I'm incredibly glad that she stopped talking. It reminds me of a time when we got on much better. The next question comes from Eve, her voice quivering. Can... Can we die here, Rob? The quiet force of her words turn everyone's heads back towards Rob. It's clear that others have been thinking the same thing, and they're looking to Rob for an answer. It's possible. The road ain't ever killed no one before. Not so long as everyone follows the rules. But you said in your emails it was dangerous. That's right. But you didn't feel like telling us that we could die out here? Rob turns to Lyrith. 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 I combined clearly in Lilith. <laughs> Rob turns to Lilith, clearly offended by her accusation. In the 1920s, John Evan Rowe killed 36 people and violated their bodies. In one of your videos, you guys went to his home in Virginia looking for the man's ghost. Bonnie and Clyde once spent $500 to stay at the Iowa State. The Iowa Murder House, a place that's supposed to possess its victims and force them to kill each other. If you all honestly believed in what you were chasing, you should be accepting death as an outcome every time you step out. We are looking for evidence of another world. What we're doing here has the scientific 
significance of the moon landings, the cultural significance of Columbus reaching the Americas, and a whole lot of people died doing so. If you accepted the risk doing chasing... Both. Yeah, doing both, actually. If you accepted the risk chasing down the ghost of a two-bit serial killer, you should be willing to accept the risk for this. And let's also just, you know, admit that, like, every day you can die, so why are you... Why are you making it sound that you, like you're gonna die more playing the left-right game? You're just as likely to have a fucking aneurysm sitting on your couch than you would... Like, granted, there's a little bit more natural cause out there in the world, but, yeah. like, seriously, it's not like you're safe anywhere. Yeah. You yeah. know? Like, they're almost blaming him. Like, I could die right now, Rob? Like, yeah, you fucking can, you stupid bitch. But you probably won't as long as you follow the rules. Follow the rules. But then the rules, you know, could just be eat healthy, get exercise. And fuck him right in the pussy. Right there. Lilith looks like she's been scolded by a parent. There's a fire in her eyes as she observes Rob meeting his criticism with scorn. Oh, so it's Ace's fault. He should have accepted the risk. He did accept the risk. Ace made his decisions. He saw the dangers of the road firsthand, and he kept going. I told you this place could be dangerous, and maybe you didn't take that seriously. But you are not gonna treat me like I lured any of you here under false pretenses. We stand for a few moments in the uncomfortable void left by Rob's words. No one's quite sure where to look. Well, what are we going to do now, Rob? Do we turn around? I ain't going to make that decision for you. If you want to split off and head back, I suggest you wait until morning and stagger your leaving times by an hour or so. I ain't never seen nothing like what happened back there before. But this is the most people I ever played the game with. Maybe that's doing something. What do you mean by that? Well, it's the only thing that's changed. Truth is, this ain't our world. By all rights, we shouldn't be here. Even when it's one car, the road always tries to discourage you. Maybe it's like bacteria in a vein. One or two might slip by unnoticed, but once it hits a certain point, it's uh, it's like a... An immune response. You think the road's pushing back on foreign objects? And the bigger the group... The more violent the response. It makes sense. Until Blue Jay laughs once more. Hearing her reaction, I reassess what I'm saying... And I can't help but feel a little foolish at the idea. Maybe. It's just a theory. I don't know. Rob collects himself, regaining his composure. Either way, you all have till morning to decide if you want to keep on the road. Bristol. If you want to go home, you gotta find someone to take you. I ain't ready to head back yet. 
He turns away from the group and marches to the Wrangler. I don't see him again for the rest of the evening, and I have no intention of bothering him. Eve and Lilith immediately crowd around me, asking if I'm alright and taking turns to disparage Rob's actions. I can't bring myself to join in. All I can bring myself to say is... Can I charge my phone in your car? The group has very little to say for the rest of the night. A deep solemnity hangs in the air, dampening any semblance of good cheer like wet leaves on a dwindling fire. No one offers any conversation. Apollo's reservoir of quips has run dry. Everyone's wondering where they'll be going from here, pondering the sort of person they are in circumstances such as this. Do they press on towards danger or back towards safe and familiar ground? It's a question they'll have to figure out for themselves, ideally, before sunrise. I already have questions of my own. About an hour after Rob's departure, bidding farewell to the rest of the group, I walk over to Lilith and Eve's car. My bag is resting on the front seat, a black wire leading inside from the charging point. I've decided not to tell the pair that I've been charging the detonator for the military-grade explosives less than ten meters away from them. Perhaps it will come out during broadcast, if you're listening to this. Sorry, girls. I pick up my bag and, checking that no one's looking at me, make a beeline for the apple grove. I march through the small wood, the air growing still, the sounds of the convoy quickly fading behind me in the late evening darkness with the moon shrouded by a legion of crooked trees. I'm puzzled that I'm not more afraid. Do they park on the road? or They park on the road, yeah. Right on the side. There are no other cars. Yeah. I've seen what happens on this road, and as I pass through the grove and into the neighboring field, intentionally isolating myself from the rest of the group, I'm quite aware that help won't be coming for me. Even so, as the corn rises up in every direction around me, I find myself almost incapable of fear. The day's events have drained me of emotion, and I'm now, with everything else, pulled away. I'm left with only one driving directive. An overpowering urge to figure this road out, regardless of what that entails. Judging the distance I've traveled to be acceptably out of range from the convoy, I took the block of C4 out of my bag and placed it on the ground, gritting my teeth. My body cringing with self-inflicting dread, I pressed the power button on the Nokia and wait for something to happen. My worries of instant disintegration are allayed slightly as the grainy image of two outstretched hands comes into view swiftly, replaced by a menu screen. I work fast, the words of the brown paper package constantly reminding me of what I'm putting at risk with every passing second. Firstly, I type my number, my own number, into the phone, assuming or at least hoping that the mechanism isn't activated by outgoing calls. A few seconds later, my cell phone rings, giving me the Nokia's number. Checking the call logs, I find a second, different number, which seems to have made a call to the phone three times in quick succession. If I were a betting woman, which I sometimes am, I'd suggest that this number belongs to whoever built the bomb. The calls representing an attempt to test the trigger prior to its implementation. If I'm right, then this should be the personal number of whoever was driving that crashed car. My third discovery is a little bit more puzzling. No texts have been sent from this phone, however, there is one solitary message residing in the phone's inbox 
It's from a third separate number, and it reads this. Please don't do this, Rob. I stare at those four words, the new information grating uncomfortably against my already preconceived theories. If this text is to be believed and my previous deductions are all that accurate, that means that Rob Guthard was driving the car. That the C4 in the trunk had belonged to him. All this time I thought Rob may have been responsible for something terrible, but what if he was run off the road himself? If that is the case, it leads to an entirely new question. Who was responsible for the crash? As I begin to think it over, the air explodes around me. I'm jolted out of my examination by a powerful, echoing voice which reverberates the very air. The corn is thrown into a frenzy as the noise echoes from every direction as if spoken by the air itself. I've watched you questioning. That might sound really cool. Without a second's hesitation, I turn off the Nokia and throw the block into my bag. I jump to my feet and scan the cornfield for whoever spoke the words, backing away towards the convoy. Suddenly realizing how far I am from my friends, I break into a run, my boots pounding the dirt as I flee back into the woods. Less than a minute later, I burst out through the trees, my bag swinging with the weight of the block, everyone's in their cars, seemingly fast asleep. I'm starting to think they're onto something. With no one to talk to and a long day ahead of me, I suppose there's no further recourse but to catch my breath, write up my immediate thoughts, and then finally get some much-needed rest. I feel a dull pressure behind my eyes as I step towards the Wrangler. Quietly opening the back door next to my sleeping area, I carefully hide the block under my luggage. Then, silently closing the door again, I wander around to the passenger side, where my notes are waiting to be typed. I reach out and grab the handle, gripping it tightly. I don't open the door. In fact, after a moment staring through the glass, I let go. The pressure behind my eyes gives way, and before I know it, I've slid down to the damp ground, my back against the cool, hard metal of the door. A whine catches in my throat as ugly tears stream down my cheeks. My breath shudders as I inhale, and my attempt to breathe out plays to the world as a quiet, declining sob. The tears take me by surprise, but I don't wipe them away in a bittersweet way. They're welcome, necessary even. By the time they've run dry, I feel like I might just be able to move on from the events of the day. The sounds in my head are just a little quieter now. I've paid them their due. Oh, are you okay, honey? I'm picking myself up when I see Bonnie walking carefully over to the Wrangler, and I brush myself off a little embarrassed at being caught. (sighs) I I didn't know you were awake. I'm a light sleeper, and, and Martin... Clyde... He snores. Do you need someone to talk to? (sighs) I think I just need to sleep. Thanks, Bonnie. And my name's Linda, if you're wondering. Alice. 
Oh, that's a beautiful name. Well, Alice, I, I know I don't talk much, but I know how to listen if you ever want me to. For the first time since the pine fell, I find myself smiling. And it's a weak smile, but a smile nonetheless. Thank you, Linda. I, I might take you up on that. Have a good night. Have a good night. Bonnie starts to walk back to the car before pausing and turning round. One last piece of comfort to offer. And remember, everything will be alright once we get to Wintery Bay. I frown a little, unsure what Bonnie means. She smiles back blankly, then resumes the path back to her car. She's mentioned that place before upon leaving Jubilation It was in what seemed like a moment of idle reminiscence. How she mentioned it just now doesn't seem like reminiscence at all. After everything that's gone on, all the suspicion I've been directing at Rob, all my worry for Ace, is something the matter with Bonnie? Perhaps I'm misunderstanding, perhaps Bonnie misspoke, but all the same, the briefest comfort her words afforded me has already faded away, leaving a familiar feeling of confusion and paranoia in its place. I let myself into the passenger side, type up a few pressing notes, and then climb through onto the air mattress. Sleep doesn't come easily, I close my eyes and try to convince myself that tomorrow will be better than this harrowing day, yet every time I make that particular argument, a voice in my head responds, that may depend on which way you turn. Bum, 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 bum. It really has a Twilight Zone feel to it. Like, I, I, I really appreciate it. And now that I think about it, you know what it reminds me of? Um, Big Fish. No, it reminds me of, uh, and this is going to be pretty pretty obvious to those that have read it 112263 by Stephen King um the way it, time travel is explained in the book is almost like the same way it's they don't belong in in this story now one person does not butterfly effect fuck the entire planet not the protagonist of 112263 he, when he goes back he makes little spider you know leg fractures in the timeline but none of his you know loops or bubbles or whatever they call them in the book really cause any like huge bursting but the entire plot of 112263 is a guy who finds a way back in time to the 50s and he spends 8 years sitting there and waiting to prevent the assassination of JFK. And every time he fucks up, he has to go back the way he came and start over again. And he starts to get, you know, he's spending more and more years in the past. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when he fucks up four years in, he kind of considers, like, you know, giving up because he's already, you know, he has to reset and do everything he just did over again up until that point for four years. It's almost like someone playing Dark Souls and never saving. Jesus Christ. So he, he fucks up at one point and he has to start over. And there are a couple other times before that where he's just testing things, testing their effects on the future. And like he goes back and saves someone from dying and then he goes into the future. And of course, the future is altered a little bit because of that person being alive. 
But then he goes back and says, okay, I'm going to save JFK. And the way his inclusion in the timeline is treated is... The book is my favorite Stephen King book. I recommend it to everyone who's ever read anything. It's not like Stephen King's other books. It's a very easy read. It's a very dramatic read. And it is captivating. From the first chapter onward, it is mind-blowing and emotional. He is treated like he doesn't belong. People look at him weird. He hears things. Um, It's almost like time itself wants to stop him from what he's about to do. Let's say he planned something to happen on Tuesday. He would wake up Tuesday morning and there would be a tree in the middle of the road. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's say he was ready to get rid of the tree, but the next, you know, the minute he gets past the tree, the next time he tries it, uh, his, his tire goes flat. Well, let's say, you know, he resets the timeline, comes back and tries to do it a third time. Well, he takes care of the tree and the tire by bringing a spare this time, but then his engine dies. You know, like... Time wants to stop him from making significant changes in the timeline. And at a point, there are even people trying to find him to tell him to stop. Uh And um, it's really great because it's kind of the same way jubilation worked. You know, like, it's kind of the way this entire story is working. Like... They said it like 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 fucking Rob said it, man. He's back. They are bacteria in in a foreign body. Yeah. They don't belong. So the body will do anything within its power to rectify the situation. They are an infection. And Stephen King follows that line very well. And that being my favorite Stephen King book means that I'm probably going to enjoy this story very much. God forbid they had a convoy of, like, 20 cars. Could you imagine that? Chaos. Pure, unmitigated chaos. The response by the... Let me ruin 11-22-63 for you. After saving JFK, he goes back to the future and it's fucked. It's all fucked. Um... JFK rides them into a Cuban war, bombs get launched, parts of the country get fucked... They, they double down on hard resources under a new president that wasn't in our timeline. Uh, that president succeeds, changes a couple of the laws. It goes complete watchmen, you know, like uh, greenhouse gases have ruined the planet. Uh, global warming is a, is a fucking mess. It's real back to the future shit, mm-hmm. you know? So mm-hmm. it's it's really great because then he goes back one more time and he makes sure that he doesn't do anything and that JFK dies. You know, it's the 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 life he makes living in the past with the people, you know, he he interacts with and the woman he falls in love with and like all of his this other shit, it's the it's the emotional center because, of course, he goes back in time for, you know, eight years, he, he falls in love with a woman and it becomes very much about, well, do I let JFK die and do I just stay back here and love this woman? Because I might not, I might be too old the next time around. 
to be mm. able to be able to spend my life with her. Okay, so yeah. if if this story starts to get time hoppy as well as dimension hoppy, which we kind of alluded to in the first part. Oh yeah, with the um, crashed car and with the... the car and the woman and and lots of weird interactions with things, I could see it getting there. And what the hell? Because anything is possible. I wonder on this what road. this this voice was about. Something is aware. You know. Something is aware. Something. Maybe powerful. Who knows? God's the road, man. That was my first guess. My first guess what this story was about is a road of gods well, what if on that, an eternal plane. Well, what if that voice wasn't the voice of God, but rather it, the voice of Satan? Or, quote-unquote, Listen, Satan. listen. Satan was the first superhero. All right, we were all slaves before we got the fruit of knowledge. Don't judge. Anyways, hail yeah, Satan. Yeah, but maybe that voice isn't supposed to be sinister. Maybe it's like Q from The Next Generation. Maybe it is. That See, that makes sense. It's an entity that we don't understand. We perceive it as godlike because it has different properties than we do. Yeah. Q is a very good rationalization. I also don't think we know enough about what that voice was to assume that yet. Mm-hmm. It could be the keeper of the road if, if, it, if it goes full campiness. Yeah. You know, 80s camp. I think the road has a point, though, and I think the point is immortality, more or less, without a chalice. I just think it's, you know, if you don't exist in your universe, then technically you don't exist in any. So then how do you age or anything? Mm-hmm. If you If all that exists is the road, is there anything else? Time? Space? Anything? Mm-hmm, yeah, well... I mean, there's space. I mean, there's Naruto. <laughs> what about Naruto? Sasuke. Hi. <laughs> hey. Oh man, I didn't get to talk about it, but I I went and ate at a place in New York yesterday called Ninja. Okay. And uh, you have to walk through like caves and dungeons to get to a little Japanese town, and this is all in the upper floor of a. New York building, and once you exit the floor and you come out of the cave, all of the tables are at little Japanese huts on, like, a village street. Wow. And, uh, you didn't see my snap story? I didn't. And, uh, you get your own little hut, and you eat in there, and ninjas come and serve you and pop out of the ceiling and shit, and and they, they do magic, and they illusion and shit, and... Wow. All your all your food is is ninja stereotyped. Uh, like uh, my brother Spum, who was there, uh, he got like bread throwing stars, um, shuriken. Oh wow! Anyway, um, it was really fun and it was really nerdy. And then my brother and I, we went and saw the new King Kong on Broadway, and it was very. Um, I will say this. Don't judge me. I mean, you could judge me if you want. If you know me, don't judge me. At last minute, they made the main protagonist, female protagonist, black. Oh, no. <laughs> I don't like continuing this, but it changed it. And let me say this before you jump down my fucking throat. When you change her skin tone, you change the entire theme of the show. When she is a poor white girl, she just 
comes off as a girl who's in over her head, very scared of things. You know, she's very good at screaming. Think about 1930s King Kong. Think about the original book. Think about even the, the Peter Jackson remake in the early 2000s, which I actually really like and own the director's cut of. Think of these three things. She is white in each of these. She is fearful and she is almost stupid. It is Beauty and the Beast. She is supposed to be one thing, and that's like an okay actress. When you make her black, and you make her spunky, and you make her stand up for herself, fuck the man, love the monkey, get jiggy with it, it's n- it changes the entire feeling of the show, and it makes it a about her being black more than it makes her about being a woman which her, is which this, is the entire point of the role. relationship to king kong correct and she kind of she pals around with him you know it's not so much a love of a transcendental relationship as much as it is like well you're a big monkey and i got to get you out of here you know it's real it's it just I'm not saying it was bad, I'm just saying it's not the King Kong I know. And the musical also tries to be a little funny, and for the life of me I couldn't laugh at fucking it anything. Was a musical. It was a musical. It was a Broadway musical with a one ton animatronic and puppet puppeteered ape. Was 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 he good? It's a puppet, so yeah, it's fucking awesome. And the screen, they they do the whole boat scene, and the screen in the back, the entire back of the stage is a fucking screen, and it, it it's like semicircle shaped, and it changes with everything. I'll show you the clips when when King Kong is running through the city, city running through the city, the lights make it look like he, you know, in the background is like an alleyway running down. So mm. it's like. You're seeing movement, and it's believable. So, um, yes, I, I, I recommend the show for pure spectacle. But if you're looking to you know reminisce on Beauty and the Beast or the original King Kong, or you have any respect for King Kong and the horror that is King Kong, you're not going to have a fan, you know, a wonderful time because it is very much a Broadway musical. It very much tries to do funny things. And for the life of me, I don't think King Kong is funny. King Kong is one of the saddest fucking stories that exists. Beauty kills the beast, people. That is that is the moral of the story, that if you are a woman, you are powerless to the man. And if you are monkey, you are powerless to the woman. And both ways will fuck you up. Yeah, people are... I can already see it now. So Hamilton did really good on Broadway. It kind of, like, changed things. It was like, oh, like, white roles played by African Americans to kind of juxtapose the meaning of history and how history has kind of more or less been built on... The backs of... The backs of African Americans. Yes, culturally appropriate, very fun. You got a message. Black and Darrow in King Kong makes it about how a black ghetto rags to riches story 
all at the expense of a giant monkey. I see what you're saying. And I think it's more of the tone that you have a problem with than the skin tone. <laughs> I had a problem with both equally. Well, suppose, suppose it was a black, a black girl, but the tone of the character, the way the actress portrayed it, oh, was absolutely. that of... So of I'm that not, of I'm like Naomi Watts and in, in, yeah. in the Peter Jackson so flick. It's really about tone. That's actually what I expected because it begins very seriously and it has a lot of serious songs and then it just kind of gets jokey and stupid. Okay. And then you got to remember, you also got to remember even the original 30s was an action adventure. And at no point in an action adventure is there time to stop and sing and dance. <laughs> that is very tough for me to swallow when I'm watching this show. Like, you know, uh, let me let me just end it this way. Like, King Kong dies in a very harrowing and emotional, almost slow motion. That it it employed a slow motion effect multiple times in the in the show, and it always worked because the visuals are just there. And some songs really benefited it from it, too, because it's like an internal yeah. reflection. It's always going to look good on Broadway. It's multi-million dollar deals. And yeah. So, so King Kong dies, gets blown off the building, and she gets up and brings the entire show home with a ballad that is about how her life has changed from the monkey. And for the life of me, I'm just like, shut the fuck up. You're supposed to be sad. Your fucking monkey just died. That's the show. It's not about empowerment. It's about how man destroys yes, nature. Yes, yes. I it was is, just going to say. It is about how humanity is destructive. And that even even a beautiful face will fucking you know, has the possibility to ruin you. Specifically, if it's the beautiful face of the West to what is considered the animalistic East. You know, um, it's tough. It It was tough to get through. And if I weren't stoned out of my mind and had eaten at a really cool ninja place, I probably would have cared more. But I didn't during, and I and I did actually enjoy myself. So... But thank you for helping me channel that in not a racist way. No, I didn't think it was racist. I thought it was objective. Because the black actress was actually very good. I'm sure. um, I'm sure. You're picking apart the essence of the story they're trying to tell. And in all of the music, it's supposed to take place in the 30s, but all of it had kind kind of had a hippie twinge to it, and that I just did not like. Mm -hmm. Well, that's directorial. And that's musically. Yeah, it's like compositionally. That... It might not. It might not even be any of the actors or actresses. It's the director at that point. You're always there to take me off of the racial horse. Thanks. Ten, I mean, ten schlong. We really shouldn't be talking about that kind of stuff without proper representation of all parties involved in the conversation because yeah. we're white men and straight white males. The, we don't it, have frowns here anymore. We the, can't talk about Broadway musicals. Yeah. The opinions we express, the views <laughs> expressed in this podcast are just mm-hmm. inherently We've been called racist bigoted. already. I'm not sure. They're, they're inherently I'm not sure bigoted. if you knew that, but we've been called racist already. Oh, we have? We have. Since episode, like, 12. 
Uh, Welcome to episode 106. Uh, we, we've done 90, uh, no. Yes? No. Yes. We've done 94 episodes since that point, so. So, yeah. I could vote Democrat and still be called racist. Yes, you can. Because I also am a Democrat and I am also racist. But I'm going to end the show now. It is two hours. Uh, Oh, you'll probably cut this. Are there any? (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) And you'll forget about it, so it's okay. Um... (laughs) Are the, is there any closing thoughts or anything you want to you want to um, bring forward? I I like Alice the character a lot. I also like the story a lot, and I love the story, and I like the mystery behind Rob. You, I I just before I answer that, I I also think you couldn't have really asked for a better season. If, no. if you if you oh, were gonna be stuck with a sh- feels like a season of this feels like a television season. <laughs> we're reading it in installments, and you know each installment is like a new episode of like Channel Zero or this Stranger is like, Things. Uh, six episodes. You know what else I was gonna say? Miniseries. I was also gonna say <laughs> to an effect, and call me fucking loony if if I if I'm alone and feeling this. But to to a point, I also feel sitting here with you on this couch. We're almost in our own car on the road, acting the characters and doing our thing. And like at points, I even imagine, you know, these characters and maybe not actors. We talked about it a little bit last time about who we would cast for certain roles. But I just imagine like just because it is you and I sitting here much like two people in a car, I feel like it helps us channel things. Yeah. Uh, a little well, bit better. I, I can tell you, with us being true to being true to these characters that we're doing the voices for, and really paying attention to the narration, yeah, it makes me the it makes me Tenranotrin, the reader and slash viewer, more invested in what we're doing and what the story brings to the table, and that's always fucking cool. And I will say that I feel, I feel weird reading it. Do you, do you kind of get what because I mean? Because it's surreal? Because it makes you question things? It, but two reasons. One, because of how invested we are and, and committed to the characters in, okay. our, in our dramatization yeah. of it. Yeah. And the second is the, the essence of the story. That's, I guess, the surrealism. Yeah, no, the story almost feels like it should be directed by, like, David Lynch or or Tim Burton, you know? Like, it almost feels like it should be... You know, I, I wish you watched Channel Zero, because I, it, it it honestly... It fucking belongs there. If, if they could do a six-episode million... Like, if they were given a, a million-dollar budget to throw at six episodes and make the left-right game into six episodes, there is no doubt in my fucking mind that that wouldn't be one of the coolest fucking programs I've ever seen. It's... I, I think it deserves national attention, the story. I think when the director or writer... I think the writing can be touched up a bit. Of course, but that's what Hollywood is for, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Last Jedi? So anyway, um... We... Every time Nick Antosca of Channel Zero does an AMA on Reddit, everyone always asks him what he's reading and what he would like to do next. And for the life of me, I, I don't think Left Right Game has always has any 
at any point appeared on his list. But I know for a fact I have seen many people say, Nick, please fucking read Left Right Game. So, really? Yes. Yes. Well, here we are. Well, here we are. Um, there aren't many other stories I would like to see drawn out into six episodes with a Hollywood cast and a, and a nice budget. Left Right Game is absolutely one I would like to see. I would put it right up there with Whistler's. Yeah. Yeah. I would put it right up there with, uh, what else would be good? Psychosis would probably be good. Odd Kids would uh, be great. Gonna say Odd, Odd kids. kids would be fucking phenomenal. Have you have you seen this painting of a hallway would be pretty good. Oh, you tell me about that. Yeah, we talk about that in episode 100. There are a bunch of good fucking stories in this show. I just, I wish people would stay away from Russian Sleep Experiment and Jeff the Killer because both of them are kind, you know, just kind of stereotypical and stupid. You know, just... Do the more creative ones. Do the more surreal ones. Like, you gotta start watching Channel Zero with me, man, because... I will. The, the new season, I don't think I've talked about it yet, but uh, season four, the, the Dream Door, it is fucking great. That first episode that they aired early as a surprise for the AMA, like, Redditors, fuck yeah, man. I watched that shit the night it came out. It was mind-blowing. It was really fucking great. They, um, they took a story that I read in episode 88, I want to say. And they turned it into something completely different. And they always kind of altered the stories. Like, uh, Candle Cove has nothing to do with two little brothers. But that was the heart of the show. Two two little brothers experiencing the Candle Cove show together and then growing up and one of them dies and the other one kind of has to revisit Candle Cove by himself. Now that his brother is dead. Similar things are happening back at home, so he goes back home to try and put Candle Cove together in his mind. Season two is No End House. I read that on, uh, well, Candle Cove I read on episode 10 with Django Phillips. Season two was No End House. I read that on episode 19 with my old roommate, Space Cowboy. And that is just about a guy going through a haunted house that, that seems to change for every room. Whereas Channel Zero makes it about a woman's relationship to her father and how after he dies it kind of haunts her for the rest of her life yes there is a haunted house with changing doors and shit but the heart of this season is uh father daughter Mm. season three butcher's block it's based off the search and rescue stories also read that with Django phillips on a lot of his earlier episodes it was his season we would end every Django episode with Search and Rescue Stories. The one thing that it carries over the most into the show is the stairs in the woods. Now, they put a door at the top of the stairs in Channel Zero, and and, and the heart of the series there is two sisters who are starting to suffer from schizophrenia uh, find a, a family at the top of those stairs uh, that exist in a different like dimension. And... Um, they're kind of dark and fucked up and, and great uh, cosmic horror. And um, that has nothing to do with the stories that Django and I read, you know? Mm-hmm. So episode 88 is just about a guy finding a door in his basement, you know, that he's never seen before. And um, one day he goes down there and there's a dude clad in black that, that kind of runs at him and then he disappears and then the story's over. Season four of Channel Zero is about that door appearing all of a sudden at a bad time in your life 
and hidden behind it is essentially a part of yourself that you've locked away. And in the series, it takes on the form of an imaginary friend she had as a little kid. Mm -hmm. But she's forgotten about him. So like a fucked up version of Inside Out. And I'm, and I'm a big fan of it. And the imaginary friend is super fucking creepy. And I love the fucking show to bits. So everyone, if you are listening to this, um, it is probably November or December. Channel Zero just finished in October. Go watch all four of those fucking series. Because I'm not sure we're going to get many more of them. And they're the best horror thing on TV uh, other than the terror. But I don't think I've talked about that yet. And I don't want to get into it right now. Tenron, any final words? Well, my last thought. I've been pondering how it'd be possible to uh, film Left Right Game. And the biggest challenge, finding long stretches of road without cars. Nevada. Done. Great. We're going. We're going? Yeah, you and I are going to Well, it takes, place in Ar- it takes place in Arizona. That's true. you got to remember that. That's also... It kind of... It knows exactly where it needs to be, and that's the yeah. Southwest. You'd be surprised, it's the Southwest. though. When- Texas is the size of one-third of our country. Square mileage, yeah. You can drive for days and not make it out of Texas. Yeah. Yeah, I remember... Think about that. Did I tell you about... Well, we'll finish the podcast. I'll tell you a little story. <laughs> yeah, tell me a little story. Once upon a time, there was a. <laughs> <laughs> and now I know the story. <laughs> and it fades back. And that was it. And that was the story. Welcome back. We're just wrapping up. You've been sitting here with Captain. <laughs> Captain Death. Yes. And Tenron Ochrin. We'll be back. Yeah, we've got like four more parts of this to do. <laughs> yeah. So, so you know, part two went really well. Uh, let's let's buckle up for parts three through six, because <laughs> we got a whole lot more to read, folks. I usually do see this split up into seven or eight parts. I yeah, I'm fine with it. I think so. it's I think it's worth it. It is it's unprecedented. And after after you're right, we have not done something like this in the podcast. <laughs> Next, so. you're just gonna read a whole book. <laughs> N- I have to talk to you about. Oh that. no! <laughs> I have to talk to you about that now. Oh, I'm stopping the you're show before I books? before I reveal all of my secrets. <laughs> lots of pasta is gonna be lots of audio books, <laughs> and then we get sued by Stephen King. Oh. <laughs> Anyway, that's the episode. <laughs> Never mind. Here's something funny too. Two to the one, to the one to the three. I like the pussy and I like the tree. Smoke so much weed, you wouldn't believe. And I get more.